thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. They're incredible what they do. A lot of them are getting shot and killed. So being able to protect U.S. troops on the ground, hear the stress in their voice, be able to show up, take out the threat, and then to hear them sound more relaxed in the radio and know you got them out of a tough situation still is the highlight of my career. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And joining me today in the Circle Air Group Studios here at Glesby Field in San Diego, California, is former U.S. Air Force F-16 turned F-35 pilot and YouTube sensation, Hazard Lee. Hazard, welcome to the show. Jello, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. I call you a sensation because you have way more subscribers than I do and really cool videos, so we'll get to that. But uh. I'm a fan, though. <laughs> I've been a fan since 2018 when you released the first couple episodes. Oh, so I've been watching... A lot. I've learned a lot, especially about legacy aircraft. So thanks for what you do. Okay, we can cut because uh, we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> but you reminded me, I guess at one point I came on your show and I have to admit I'd been on so many different shows. I sort of forgot, but sort of remembered. But All right. I guess it wasn't that good of an interview. I'm but, sorry. Uh, but I learned a lot, especially about naval aviation. So good. thanks for coming on. Well, that's, that's what's important. Well, let's get to who you are, what you're doing and all that. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from and what inspired you to become a military aviator? Yeah, so I, I grew up kind of all over the U.S. My dad was a scientist in the Department of Energy, so we bounced around a lot. It was kind of like being a military family. So we lived in uh, Livermore, California, Livermore National Labs out there, lived in D.C., and then really settled in Los Alamos, New Mexico. So that's the home of the Manhattan Project, pretty much by design in the middle of nowhere. So they wanted a place during World War II that was inaccessible by the uh, the Germans or Japanese. So Grew up there. There wasn't a lot of aviation there, but caught the aviation bug going to an air show when I was five and saw the Thunderbirds fly. This was back when you could hop in a, a cockpit. So I sat in a cockpit of, I think it was an F-15, F-16, wore the helmet. From that day on, I was hooked. Not a lot you can do as a kid with you know military aviation. So played a lot of sports growing up and uh, got my first flight in a, a Cessna 152 when I was a teenager. You know, I just loved how it kind of combined sports with school. You had to study. You also had to be focused and have hand-eye coordination. So loved it. It was too expensive at the time. I was, you know, working at McDonald's to pay for that flight. So that's tough when you're making five twenty-five an hour. After that, I had my sights set on going to the academy. So we will get into parts of your career as part of this discussion. But give us a high-level overview. So you, you ended up at the Air Force Academy? Eventually. So I, I actually got the, uh, you know, I was really into going to the Air Force Academy, had all the stickers in my room and the posters and uh, got a letter from the Academy. And it was just a crisp, white, small letter. And it said, unfortunately, we don't have the spots for you this year. Good luck with your life. And so pretty down for a couple of weeks and then got another letter saying if I went to a, a school called New Mexico Military Institute in a place even more remote than Los Alamos, Roswell, New Mexico, that if I kept my grades up for a year, then I could go to the academy. So went there, kept my grades up, went to the academy, and uh, 
box at the academy and uh you know when you have a dream of like making it a pilot training your medical clearance is kind of the big unknown at the academy you're committed after sophomore year and so junior year i box intercollegiately there the day before my medical i was fighting somebody and ruptured my eardrum so uh you know that caused a lot of issues and had to get a bunch of waivers but uh, made it through that process got selected to become a pilot from there went to pilot training big picture overview pilot training and then selected F-16s, went to Korea, flying out of Kunsan, Shaw, flying Block 50s, transitioned to the F-35, and then transitioned to the reserves. That's really cool. I wish I had kept it. I have a similar letter from the Naval Academy. I don't have it anymore, but it said basically the same thing, except I didn't get the second letter. <laughs> it was just good luck. But did you ever consider the Navy or Marine Corps? Was it just Air Force because of where you were or just felt right? Navy, definitely. So I, I applied to the Navy, too. I don't think they they ever got back to me. So, <laughs> they didn't even so respond. still waiting on that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I was pretty much set on the Air Force, but I could have easily gone Navy. For my own journey, I just I grew up near the ocean, and uh, I just kind of knew the Navy was right for me. But definitely respected the Air Force, but I just thought, oh, this is the right way well, to go. You guys have all the best locations. You know, uh, we're in San Diego we say right the same now. Thing about you guys, we're, you know, we're in you know <laughs> Enid, Oklahoma, Sumter, South Carolina. Uh, true, Clovis, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. okay, good spots. Cool. So when you were an F-16 pilot, you went and did at least one what deployment to Afghanistan? Correct. And Block 50 is at Wild Weasels. Wild Weasel. Yep. Okay. So what was that like? Were you there during a particularly exciting time? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, going to Shaw, flying Block 50s, that's, in my opinion, the most important mission set. The Wild Weasel mission, suppression of enemy air defense. So we were fully focused on that. And it's kind of more in vogue now, now that we're switching to great power competition with China. And you're seeing that play out in Ukraine, that uh, seed is an absolutely essential mission set. So anyway, we trained for that. We were focused on that. There were only six squadrons at the time doing the SEED mission. So we were always, we went to 10 flag level exercises in just three years. So we were always busy hitting the road, focus on that. And then CAS is kind of the opposite. So we um, found out we were deploying to Afghanistan. And so we went through like a, a three month spin up for that, where we're just, you know, learning how to interact with the JTACs, learning how to get good at CAS, because that's not something that we focused on. And we ended up deploying out to Afghanistan late 2016. And it was kind of during the drawdown. There wasn't a lot going on. But then uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis took over beginning of 2017. And that was also with the rise of ISIS. So Mattis said he wanted all ISIS annihilated. And so the Air Force spent a couple weeks figuring out what annihilated meant. And we were the only squadron in the country. We were flying 24-hour ops, two-ship airborne at any given time. And so once they figured out what annihilated meant, we were cleaning the rails on every flight. And so we were extremely busy. The uh, Army did a bunch of high-risk ops sweeping the Nangahar region because that's really where ISIS was starting to entrench. So we were really busy out there. Yeah, sounds like it. Why send, though, a seed or wild weasel squadron to Afghanistan? Is it because they need to spread the deployments out? Or was there a need for that mission or something else maybe I'm missing? Yeah, it was just our turn. So it was from a manning perspective, just being able to uh, distribute it equally and I think every squadron wants to get into the fight. So I know I was, I reclamed, you know, stayed back twice for it. So about an extra year I stayed at Shaw Air Force Base so that I could go on the deployment because I was definitely excited to get out there and try to, you know, do the mission that we trained for. And I tell you, I fumble with that all the time on this show because I don't want us to come across as warmongers, right? It's not like we want a war and we don't want to kill. But on the other hand, you train, 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 and you want to see how you do. If there is a game, 
put me in. Exactly. I, I, yeah, I, I don't think most pilots are warmongers, but if there is going to be a game out there, you want your number called. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So you ended up, I'm sure, with, uh, I don't know if you keep track of how many weapons you've employed, but probably a lot if you did. And then was there a new weapon that you, like, so we had Dan Hampton on the show talking about his seed experiences, and, and he wasn't a big fan of the harm, and I don't know if you want to talk to that at all. But weapons sounds like they changed a little bit, particularly around 16, 17 when you were deployed. Yeah, so harm is something that we were really familiar with as a seed squadron. So um, as a wingman, you really cut your teeth on that weapon and learning all the beeps and squeaks behind it. But yeah, it's not great in a CAS environment. So we actually found out a few weeks before we were set to deploy that we were going to get a new weapon called the AGR-20. So Advanced Precision Weapon Kill System is another name for it. It's those old Vietnam-era 2.75-inch rockets, Mm -hmm. but they put a laser seeker on it. And actually, it's been around since the early 2000s, but for helicopters. And so they really didn't figure that fixed-wing aircraft were going to use this thing, but Afghanistan was the perfect environment for it. It was low collateral damage, a 10-pound grenade, essentially, on the tip of that thing. So I don't know if you ever had a chance to shoot rockets, but it's such a good weapon system. Like, you know, you're just diving towards the ground. It's almost like strafing, but coupled with a ability to have precision with it, and they were nail drivers, it really changed the game for us in Afghanistan, being able to employ on, you know, every sortie, even if there was, you know, a lot of collateral issues behind it. So... Yeah, there's some growing pains trying to figure out how to use it. In fact, in our SMIS and our avionics, there was even a, you couldn't even call it up. So we had to load it in as an old, dumb Mark 82 bomb. Um, <laughs> so there were a lot of growing pains like that, but it turned into a, a great weapon. So to answer your question directly, of course, the Navy was not a big fan of rockets for the longest time based on some pretty sensational fires on some carriers, but they've started to come back in vogue in the last few years, and I did have a chance, finally, at the end of my career, I was the operations officer, so I saw it coming up, I was like, oh, Aiello. But yeah, I had a chance to fire a few, and and you're right, I mean, they're kind of exhilarating to fire, but they can be very precise, and you made a great point, for the last 25 years, the Navy and Air Force and anyone who's been operating in those areas has been worried about collateral damage because you're always attacking threats that are close to civilian or maybe religious or cultural, civic type of things. So you don't want to put a 2,000-pound bomb if you don't have to kind of thing. Yeah, and I think we actually stole them from the Navy. So I think there's a ship, you know, in the middle of the ocean somewhere, and they took several hundred of them from there. So, uh, so I don't know how that all worked, but they were great weapons, and we were employing them a lot, but we also had, you know, GB-54s, 500-pound bombs, GB-31s, 2,000-pound bombs. So we we really got the full, you know, gamut out there, which was we all thought going to Afghanistan wasn't going to be busy, and it turned into one of the busiest times. Well, and that can be, I think, rewarding. First off, I don't know about you. I would much rather be busy than sit idle. But secondly, to know that you're making a difference. And again, not that, oh, great, I killed 20 people, but, hey, I saved this squad of Marines or platoon of infantry or whatever the case might be, I think can be uh, very rewarding. Yeah, hands down the most rewarding, meaningful thing that I've done outside of being a father, maybe in in my life, being able to protect U.S. troops on the ground. They were really putting themselves out there for these Nangahar clearing ops, and a lot of them were getting shot and killed. So it was great to be able to... you know, it's fighter aircraft, kind of our superpower is flying fast. And so especially in a place like Afghanistan, we'd be doing missions on the western coast near Iran. Firefight would kick off near Pakistan. So we were flying all over the country, busy, but it would be great to show up on station. JTACs, they're incredible what they do, especially the combat controllers that we were dealing with. But to hear the stress in their voice, to be able to show up, take out the threat, and then to hear them 
sound more relaxed on the radio and to know you got him out of a tough situation was it still is the highlight of my career well and you made a connection a moment ago between that and being a father and i would say in some kind of weird way it, it probably is very similar you know the idea of providing taking care of standing in for or whatever the case is so I'm getting a little deep here so you were you at bagram Bagram, okay. correct. Yeah, I was there in 11 to 12. I wasn't flying though, but I used to, it was, I would watch the F-16s take off longingly because I was helping a task force with mostly doing PowerPoint. For what, a, what an alien landscape, right? Oh gosh, like it's yeah. fi- surrounded by 15,000 foot mountains. Yeah. You have the talcum powder like dust that goes up to about 15,000 feet. If it wasn't so dangerous, it'd be great skiing. <laughs> oh yeah, I've always said the mountains there could be like Lake Tahoe um, kind of thing if you could just erase the last hundred years of conflict. Did you ever like run the perimeter or anything? Remember those areas that were roped off because they had the little triangle for mines? I mean, that whole area is just, and then rocket attacks and crazy stuff. I mean, it feels normal in some ways like a city because there's so many Americans running around, but then all of a sudden sirens going off. And Yeah, we, we got mortared quite a bit there. And then we also had a, a suicide attacker. This was, you know, as you know, pretty much have 24-hour ops. There's no days off when you're deployed. And we, we had somebody, we had one event planned, and it was a, a 5K run at like 6 in the morning, sun up on Veterans Day. And so there was a, a Taliban member that snuck on the base, snuck explosives on, and detonated themselves. There was some aspects that were kind of like home, but then, you know, you quickly snapped out of it by things like that. For sure. When you did that tour and you came home, was the F-35 transition because of the unit you were in or because of the way the Air Force needed you and your next assignment? What was that like? I volunteered for it. So people thought, you know, other friends thought I was crazy at the time. They're like, oh, you know, F-35 has all these problems. It's like a F-117 with AMRAMs. You don't want to deal with that. But I had been a part of a bunch of red flag level exercises and saw that that was the future. Like the F-35s, they were going into the MES, the missile engagement zones. They were doing all the fun stuff. And in my Block 50, I was really far away just lobbing hard missiles. So I, I saw the writing on the wall, even though the F-35 had a lot of issues at the time. That was number one on my list. And fortunately, got selected for it and so made the transition, which... You know, I think the Block 50 is the best aircraft to transition to because the F-35, really the meat and potatoes is seed, that suppression of enemy air defense. So we're getting people from F-22s, A-10s, Navy pilots uh, from every area. And I think those people with the seed background transition the best to it. How many hours did you have in the F-16 when you transitioned? Uh, I think about 1250, something like that. And what do you have now in the F-35? That's a good question. Probably about half that, yeah. And was the transition difficult? I mean, it's right, same manufacturer, same side stick, single engine, but cockpit's obviously quite a bit different. How was that transition? You know, it, it took a little while. It took me about a year to really start thinking in F-35 because before I was thinking in F-16 and then I'd be like, how do I you know, translate it and then go to F-35? But the switches are very similar to the F-16, only each switch also goes down. So you have that Z-axis. You have a lot of like short pushes, long pushes. People don't understand like just how many commands you can do with the HOTAS, hands on the throttle and stick, but you can literally do thousands of different commands. Each button goes forward, back, left, right, long pushes, short pushes, and then we have multiple master modes that completely change all the buttons. So just getting a handle on all of that so that you're fluent in being able to think in F-35 took me about a year. As far as the mission sets, you know, it was pretty similar to flying Block 50 F-16s. Back then, this was 2017, you know, it was still a 
pre-IOC, pre-initial uh, operation capability aircraft. So we didn't quite have all the tactics down. We were still focused on aircraft operating limits and things like that. So I would say the transition was easier back then than it is now because when people go through, it can be a pretty brutal upgrade now for people since we just have so many tactics that they have to memorize and learn. But hopefully the process itself has matured enough that we've figured out what things we need to cover and don't need to cover. So sounds like you might have been exploring new territory there a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it was a good opportunity. So when I first showed up, we were figuring out how do we actually train people. Like before me, they only had eight total flights and you went from whatever aircraft you were to uh, flying the F-35. When I showed up, it was kind of in between. They're still trying to, you know, mostly focus on just being able to fly the aircraft, not necessarily employ it. And in the years since, we've developed all the tactics that we have now. So it was a good period where I was able to be a part of what's called the training squadron out there where we were developing the syllabus for the F-35. And it was a great opportunity. We had Raptor pilots. We had A-10 pilots. We had foreign partners like Luke Air Force Base is kind of the key international base. F-35, there's, I think, 13 different uh, nations that are flying it. So they all train out of Luke as well. So we had their expertise. So it was kind of a clean slate to be able to reimagine what Air Force, the B course was going to look like since before I showed up, there wasn't a, a B course. So we had a cool opportunity to really utilize more virtual reality, more simulator based. F-35 is only single seat. So the first time they take off, they have to be ready to land it. So there was a lot of opportunities where we could inject technology and also to change up the flow. So we would lump pilots together based on their background because there was a lot of negative transfer, maybe not a ton from the F-16, but definitely from some of the other platforms. If you're spending all day doing CAS and now you're doing seed, there's a lot of negative transfer. So, you know, we would lump students together. So it was it was a good opportunity to completely change up pilot training. I think we have most of it dialed in and we're able to uh, optimize to have a better wingman now and pilot. And that must have been an interesting time to be there to be able to cut your teeth, not so much yours, but the airplanes on what's the best way to do this. But let me ask you this, because we've had your friends uh, Cinco Hamilton on the show and then Billy Flynn, who's on your uh, YouTube channel with some shorts. So I never had any personal experience with it other than it was coming and it was, you know, sort of off to the side when I was retiring. But when I think back at the progression of fighters through history, right? You know, let's go back to like the P-51, P-38, what, maybe F-86, F-8, F-4, F-14, 15, 16, 18. Like you could almost kind of line these up and, and watch how they progress. Would the F-35 also be on that or is it sort of off to the side? In other words, like what Cinco was arguing is it really redefines what we do in a fighter. And, and when he's talked about having more SA than the AWACS, and, and I don't know if that was anecdotal, and you've got some time in it, so you can tell me too, but that just tells me that, no, that's not just incrementally better, that's redefining. And I wonder if that's part of the reason the program has been somewhat maligned, because we think it's just another one of these aircraft, but wait, it's different. So I don't know, am I on to something there? Or? Yeah, I think it's definitely a big jump in capability, since it's really the first new aircraft. I mean, F-22 came around, it's a you know, mid-90s aircraft, but we've had these jumps I would say the aircraft in the 60s, it was really about going high and fast. And then that, you know, with John Boyd switched to, hey, how fast can you raid around? How fast can you uh, get into a dogfight and and, uh, kill the adversary? So then you had the F-16 born out of that. 
And then we've been adding on new systems like John Boyd be rolling in his grave if he saw what we were taking in yeah. Afghanistan with the AGR-20 trash can on the side of our wing and then the brew with you know multiple 500-pound bombs. There are times when we'd have to tap afterburner to stay on the tanker. So, he, yeah, he'd be rolling in his grave based on what we've done with that platform. But we've changed it up to kind of what the F-35 is doing now. So I would say the F-35 is a massive jump. You know, any aircraft that's 30 years newer is going to be a big jump. When I was flying the F-16, we were flying the newest ones in the Air Force inventory, and those were built in the early 2000s. And so I don't know if you've had a chance to go to the F-35 factory, but it is a mile long. It's more incredible than any aircraft that I've seen. And I love the F-35, and I love uh, aviation, but this factory is building 200 of these at the same time. Mile long. It's incredible. But uh, to your point, F-35 is a, a big jump in capability. And a lot of it doesn't translate to what a casual aviation fan likes to see. So it's not necessarily about turning tightly or flying fast. That's Those are the first questions that people ask me. How high does it go? How fast does it go? And then some people that know a little bit more, you know, how fast does it turn? But that's not really what the F-35 was designed for. So, you know, it was designed to be stealthy. So that's the ticket to any high-end conflict now. You have to be stealth. And I know there's a lot of critics of stealth, but um, as a fighter aircraft, any fighter now needs to be stealth if they're going into anything mid-level conflict and above. Otherwise, they're going to get shot down. You need to have uh, great sensors on your jet. And the trick is really designing those great sensors and making them stealthy. That's the tough part. You can't just have an AWACS out there. That's going to get shot down. So that's the secret sauce is, is combining those things together, having sensor fusion, multiple sensors out there. In the F-16, we had one of the highest CFITs, controlled flight into terrain, where the pilot is just focused on too many things. You have 80s, 90s, 2000s technology. It's like a rat's nest of stuff that you're looking at. And it takes a, a lot as a pilot to maintain situational awareness. But the F-35 fuses all that data into a green dot if it's a good guy, red dot if it's a bad guy. So it allows you to be more of a mission commander. And unlike what people were thinking with the F-22, we're going to have, you know, fifth-gen fighters. They're going to go into Russia. They're going to be on their own as a wolf pack. What we've really found is that these fourth-gen fighters, like the F-15, F-16, they're going to be around till the late 2040s. And right now, only 20% of the fighter force is fifth-gen fighters. So the real key is finding a way to integrate all these forces together. It's not this 1v1 cage match. You send up your Su-57, I'll send up F-35. It's multi-domain, really complex, all going in there. And that's really where the F-35 thrives because it passes the data along to all these other platforms. So you, you're able to communicate. And if it's a really bad threat, you can go in there and kill it. Otherwise, you can help raise everybody else's game through what's called fighter integration. So those things don't really show off at an air show. Like you can't just pop the hood because first of all, it's classified. Second of all, it's just like a server rack, you know, how, you, you know, it's not going to show off anything, but it is extremely capable when you are talking about like a, a major conflict. Well, and as a boxer, right, you used to be probably interested in fastest punch or longest reach, but now we're almost talking about a whole different conflict. Maybe it's not boxing. Maybe it's, I don't know, something else, but at any rate, when you're training F-35 pilots, you had, as I understand, a hand in training them a little differently. So for example, in the 90s, when I was learning the T-2 Buckeye, let's say, or the A-4 Skyhawk, I had manuals that I took home. I tried to like 
teach myself what it was and hope that I got the skill, chair fly if I had to, simulator, and then go and do it. And if I didn't do it well, I had to internalize that and try to do it again. But a lot of times, especially for someone like me who doesn't necessarily benefit from absolute self-confidence all the time, I would tend to trip up on my own mistakes, which only made it worse. And so as part of the F-35 training program, did you have a hand in, hey, maybe there's a better way to do this? Now that we know more about humans and the way we learn and the way we experience setbacks or advancements for that matter, maybe there's something we can be equipping our students with that I didn't benefit from. Yeah, they, they've really switched up the training to optimizing the human weapon system. So we invest all this money into jets, $100 million, but we really don't invest anything into the pilot's mindset or physical well-being. We probably both have a lot of friends that had to retire early because they couldn't handle the G-forces, especially with the F-35 with the heavy helmet. We're having a lot of people that are having to, uh, to either go to a staff job or to medically retire. So from a physical aspect of it, Let's get these pilots to have trainers, to have nutritionists, to really think and treat their bodies like a uh, Olympic athlete. And then same thing with the mental side. So every Olympian and uh, you know most professional athletes, they have mental performance coaches as well. So where you're going through visualization, we, we would call that chair flying, self-talk, staying in the present moment, really learning to uh, unpack what's a good mindset, not critiquing yourself too much. So it actually all stemmed from a single flight doc who was able to get a grant to test this at Luke Air Force Base. And it worked so well at Luke that they started testing it in Air Force pilot training. And now that's across all Air Force pilot training. And I've had a bunch of Navy pilots reach out as well. So I think it's spread there as well, where from day one, when they show up, they're doing this mental performance training, physical performance training. Because when I joined, you're just eating jalapeno you know, popcorn. And <laughs> some of the pilots would be like, oh, to handle the G's, just smoke a cigarette beforehand and that four has an ashtray in it so i think it's most fields are, are kind of finding ways to optimize human performance and you know it's not going to be a night and day difference but if it can take you five percent better like it's probably worth investing and in. we'll spend eight hours in the debrief just to get a fraction better if you ever watch the Olympics, right, they'll have a skier go down and then they can superimpose the other one. And the gold and the silver might be just that one little way that ski was being held or however they did it. And, and those little differences can, in the case of the Olympics, mean the difference between a certain medal and in our business could be life and death. And I think we've just scratched the surface of it. So we've yeah. it's finally implemented. It's across all Air Force pilot training moving into the Navy. So I think there's a lot more opportunity there. But it's pretty amazing that this really stemmed from uh, a single flight doc, Woody Anderson, along with the support of uh, General Quast, who was looking to completely reimagine Air Force pilot training because it hadn't really changed in 60 years. And he kind of purposely blew it up so that we could build it from the ground up again. Sometimes you have to do that. Mm -hmm. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. 
If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoraviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoraviation.com careers. Visit today. All right, so I want to connect a couple things you talked about earlier. One is you went from active Air Force to the reserves. And then another is the F-35 line. So now that you are sort of a part-time soldier, if I may say, you have the freedom when you're not on guard duty to, I don't know if that's the right thing to call it, but you know what I'm saying, um, to do other things. And you have a very successful YouTube channel. And was the F-35 line, was that one of the things you were able to go do as part of your... I did, did yeah. I, so I, I, I was able to, to go and kind of showcase the line because we think of this F-35 program as just this like dark trillion dollar program out there, but it really has a lot of people behind it. And so I was able to talk to a lot of them and a lot of them had 30 plus years experience, some on the F-22, then the F-35. So being able to kind of tell their story and they're busy every day in classified facilities, slaving away, like making this amazing jet. And it was really motivating for me because they'll spend all day making a single panel. You know, as pilots, we don't see that. We just hop in the jet and go. So it was really motivating for me to be able to see the care and the precision that they put into making these aircraft. And being able to tell that story from the YouTube perspective was nice because there's such a big audience out there, as you've seen with the Fighter Pilot Podcast. There's so many people that are curious, but there's not a lot of good information out there, people going in the factory or having somebody who's been designing it, talk to the camera about what it takes to do it. And yeah, it was pretty amazing. We talked to the chief engineer there. He had immigrated from Cuba and his uh, heart just bled red, white, and blue. Like he was just as motivated as any warfighter you'll see out there. And he had that kind of conviction and passion of trying to make the F-35 the best aircraft that he could make possible. And to talk a little bit before, I think there are some criticisms for the F-35 program for sure. But I think if people could just put into two categories, the development, which did have rocky issues and was you know behind timeline and cost and stuff like that with the current aircraft. So you can have you know less than optimal development and production, and then you can have a pretty good aircraft now. So that's just a tangent for that. But uh, yeah, being able to tell those people's stories and other stories too. I've worked with the Coast Guard. I've worked with Nellis Air Force Base with human performance monitoring. So again, going back to uh, how we monitor, you know, how the system and how the jet's doing, but not ourselves. And so we were able to uh, stick heart rate monitors on pilots and see that their heart rate was getting to like 170 beats per minute during BFM dogfighting. And then uh, even during strength level flight, it was like 100 beats per minute, which really surprised me. But I think it's just that cognitive workload. Well, and that's the thing about being retired is now suddenly it's a lot more effort for me to keep the pounds off. It wasn't so hard when I was flying all the time, probably for that reason. I think they did something similar in, I want to say Vietnam. They put a monitor on an A6 crew and they went and did a bomb mission at night. And they're like, okay, yeah, it's elevated, but apparently the highest it was when they were trying to land on the, on the carrier later. But let's pull the thread on the YouTube channel a little bit. First off, what's the name of the channel, but what got you started? Like, what's the goal for it? And did you have some background broadcasting or anything? But No, not at all. So it's just under my name, Hazard Lee, out there. But it really started in 2017, and it wasn't a, uh, a YouTube channel back then. So I had just come back from Afghanistan. I was going through F-35 training, and they... Luke Air Force Base wanted somebody to speak in the city of Carefree during Memorial Day talking about, you know, what it's like as a service member to lose somebody. And so I, I gave 
a speech there and there's a woman in the crowd who was a teacher and she was like, well, my students need to hear this. They don't know anybody from the military. Can you come into my schools and just share your story? And so I started doing that, found out there are a lot of people that were interested in aviation and the military. And I was like, well, there's probably a digital way to get this out there. And so I was like, let's start a podcast. So started a podcast. That's when I had you on the show. And from there, it kind of branched out to YouTube. I like the visual aspect of being able to go and show like the people on the line laying carbon fiber strips and, and stuff like that, or getting a chance to work with the Coast Guard and jump in the freezing cold water with them and just show like these guys are really, you know, experienced, highly trained professionals. So just one thing's led to another. And then, uh, doing that now and just got back from the centrifuge. We were shooting, trying to show uh, what would happen if a UFC fighter went in the centrifuge at nine G's. Okay. So, so do we get to, of course, by the time this episode comes out, will that episode have already aired? Probably. Okay. Yeah. So people can go check for Hazard Lee on the YouTube channel and see yeah. that one. Who did you have? Uh, are you willing to say? Yeah, we, we had Tito Ortiz. So he's one of the greatest light heavyweights of all time. He's the ninth person ever to be inducted into the uh, UFC Hall of Fame. And so got to give credit to him. He at least had seen videos of what he was getting himself into and volunteered for it. And he's the only second person ever at the NASTAR training facility in Pennsylvania to volunteer to do nine G's who wasn't a former fighter pilot. And so we cranked it up to nine G's and uh, touch nine and come back. The first time we touched nine came back. He was pretty disoriented and, uh, you know, was pretty excited. <laughs> and then the second time he decided to do a full up profile and, uh, did not stay awake for that. But like I said, I got to give the guy credit. Like, you know, it'd be like uh, you and me stepping into the cage with him. Like it wouldn't work out well for us. I might as well just punch myself and knock myself out because yeah, it's not going to. Yeah. Yeah. So big credit to him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he did not stay awake for it. Well, I went through, gosh, in 2013, I was a commander almost done with my career before I finally had to go to the centrifuge. And it was brutal, but I passed. But I have pictures of myself. They're not very flattering, but all the burst capillaries, I was purple on the, all the side of my body and most of my buttocks. Yeah, we, we actually, since this wasn't an Air Force thing, we had them reprogram it so that it went 30 seconds the next day. And so I hopped in there and it felt like it was a 10 minute spin, even though it was 30 seconds. Like it was a whole journey where you're spinning up and you're losing the light, you're pushing it out, and it's just this darkness that's coming for you, and your, your vision's just shrinking in, and you're just squeezing. Yeah, 20 seconds in, you know, it felt like it had been 10 minutes, wow. and uh, they actually left it on a little bit longer than it should have, <laughs> so it went like 33 <laughs> seconds, so I was like, am I just getting time dilation? But afterwards, I mean, my body was beat up for like four or five days. Yeah, burst capillaries all on my side, on my legs, and the veins hurt because I think it's going into your veins and it's like uh, expanding the veins and and arteries. So I couldn't like lift for a little bit. So yeah, I don't think people realize just the stress that these uh, planes can put on your body. Well, at least you had the benefit of some proficiency, right? You're flying a couple times a month or? Yeah, flying a little bit. So when I'm, I'll be on status for a little bit, I'll I'll get a bunch of flights in and then I'll be off status doing my own thing. Um, That was the word I was looking for earlier when on guard or whatever the heck I said. (laughs) Let's get back to your YouTube channel though. I mean, you have an opportunity to do a lot of cool things. It helps that you're in Phoenix, but top aces, right? They're down the road at former Williams, I guess, Air Force Base. Yeah, Mesa. You had a chance to go hang out with them. You have a chance to, I saw something, I didn't watch it, sorry to say, about something like the newest airliner, but you've got all kinds of cool projects. So yeah, you know, we're just kind of doing anything. You know, I like sharing aviation stories. And so one of them was top aces, 
they have the world's first civilian F-16s. And that video has like over 2 million views. Yeah, lots of views. I mean, it, it's crazy to think that there's F-16s owned by civilians and they're still being flown by the military. Mm. And so that was actually the issue with the State Department. So those guys went through years of paperwork. Oh, yeah. It's really interesting story. They bought these 29 F-16s from Israel. So a lot of them were in the, the nuclear raid. Some of them have air-to-air kills. So they just have that history. And you can see that these things have been in combat. And, I mean, they fly like a bat out of hell. Like the gun's been removed. It's, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, what, F-16Ns. They're incredibly quick. They're sleek. There's nothing on them. They can dogfight extremely well. And some of them are kind of old. They're the A models. And some of them are being upgraded to the advanced aggressor suite. So they're putting in AISA radars. So those are like the radar in my F-35. So far better than the Mexican radars. They have uh, augmented reality Scorpion helmets. They have a whole suite of avionics where you can switch from like Su-30, Su-35, J-10 which is pretty incredible. But the root of it is to be able to provide red air training because A, it's not great for like US F-16s for those pilots to be training as red air. You do get some airmanship, but you're not training the blue tactics that you should be. And then for like F-35 or F-22, that's a real waste of an asset to use those guys as red air, especially if it's not going to be a great threat. So it's great that we're using them as red air so that we can focus more on the blue air tactics. So it was great flying with them. We did a couple videos and then uh, did a video with Terry Verts with the space shuttle. So that was great to be able to hear his stories of like coming in at Mach 20 and hearing like panels coming loose. You know, he was he was the pilot. And so most of the people sit up top, but a few people sit in the bottom where there's no windows. And he's like, the cardinal rule is you never say, what's that as the pilot? And he was like, that was a time when the panel was coming loose that I had to say, what's that? And freak out the people downstairs. <laughs> but it turned out, I guess it was just some sort of um, weird asymmetry with that particular uh, shuttle. So hearing his stories, and then uh, we actually got a chance to go in the zero G plane that was, you know, that does the parabolas and gives you 15 seconds of zero G. And we did a couple of experiments and that was a lot of fun to, you know, he was in his element. He spent seven months in uh, in space. At least as a fighter pilot, I, I'm not a fan of zero G or negative Gs. I don't know if you're similar. So it was definitely a new environment for me. So it was kind of comparing his experience and doing all this stuff to my experience who I'm used to lots of Gs, but not zero or uh, we never went negative, but definitely not zero G. Yeah. I think they do that, what, for uh astronaut training is, is that that specially modified where it's kind of padded inside yep it's yeah, okay. it's all padded it's used by nasa and a lot of researchers so this one it, it's only about 10 feet high apparently there's one in russia that's like 20 feet high so you can get loose in the cabin if you're not experienced and get to 20 feet and then it pulls one g and bam <laughs> they don't sound a horn or put on a light or something they for do it? but okay. if you're not experienced you, you don't know what to do like because it's it's such a different environment it's uh, even different than uh being underwater underwater you can kind of paddle and do right, things yeah. but in zero G, you can get stuck and you can't move your body. Like you can twist it, but you, you can't, yeah, you can't, <laughs> you know, kick your way towards the handle. So you have to always kind of be cognizant of that. So there's some interesting things that we did. We uh, popped a water balloon and tried to catch a bunch of Orbeez that we put inside and just had a, had a good time with that. Cool. So the YouTube channel is just a way to have fun, but celebrate military aviation or maybe ancillary activities around aviation and yeah and meet interesting i'm right the benefit of that is you get all kinds of cool experiences and meet great people i love 
doing it. So I, I love uh, being able to educate people and show people like, for instance, going with the Coast Guard and showing that they're actually setting alert 24 hours a day. They had like 30 saves in Port Angeles up to that point. So they're, we do a lot of training and we deploy every once in a while. It's the opposite for them. They're always kind of on deployment and training occasionally. So it was great to be able to share their story. And then, yeah, I like doing some of this fun stuff. I guess call me a masochist, but I, you know, I had fun in the centrifuge uh, yeah. and trying to push yourself, push your body. And so I think it's a good combination of, of doing things and using a lot of the skills that I learned in the Air Force kind of as like project manager to, to coordinate all these things. Well, but also you're still in a way serving because people who consume your product are learning something. They're being entertained. And in the end, hopefully they're better off for it and, and they, they have a little fun. So that's a good thing. All right, I've got some listener questions here for you, if I, if you don't mind. These are from our Patreon supporters who uh, get to know that I'm sitting down with you, and they get to pose questions. And I said, hey, you know, he's got his website, he's got his YouTube channel, so go check it out and then get ready with your questions. So here's Jevons is a good one right off the bat. If you had two pilots of equal skill, which is always hard to know that, but one in a current model F-16, one in an F-35A, both with helmet-mounted queuing systems, AIM-9X, and guns at 20 miles, Who's more likely to get the kill? That's a good question. I don't want to tie a specific range to it because that could okay. you might get into trouble with that. But I would say F-35, it's so much newer. If you're in the beyond visual range environment, it's just going to dominate. It's such a force multiplier out there on the battlefield. So BVR, it's no question F-35. And I think you've had a lot of pilots on the on the podcast. Have there been any current pilots that have flown in these large force exercises that have, you know, said, oh, the F-35 isn't good, like the criticisms are correct in terms of how it flies? Because I haven't met any. No, but I don't think the subject has come up much lately. Yeah, the last thing I remember is, is was Billy was talking about some of those early flag exercises. You mentioned that flag exercise thing before, right, red and green, whatever. Big exercises involve a lot of units, but I just haven't asked and I haven't heard, so I assume it's doing pretty well. It, I feel like a lot of the criticism has slowed down. And you talked earlier about almost like the hemispheres of the beginning, which, oh, by the way, what airplane doesn't have setbacks and cost overruns, et cetera. But it was also very publicized because everyone has a camera these days. Mm -hmm. And Uh, social media. And social media. I'm curious what the F-16 would be like if Instagram existed in (laughs) in the 1970s. Lawn darts, right? Everybody would have a a picture of an F-16. We've lost hundreds of F-16s, and it's turned into one of the most successful airframes. I mean, there are periods where... They're losing an F-16 every like two to three weeks, which is pretty crazy compared to today. So, Was it the F-104 that they used to say if you wanted to get one, just buy an acre of land in Germany <laughs> and wait like a couple of days? <laughs> Probably. I, I mean, I heard it's a Widowmaker. Uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. Next question is by Scott Kelly. I don't think it's the astronaut. He said, Hassard's name is larger than life. Did his name ever get him into trouble? Has he ever considered using a blander moniker like Steve or Brett? Please share a story where the name paid dividends. Now, Hazard's not your real first name, though. Call sign. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So um, let's see. Hazard but you've done such a good job of like making it basically your name that apparently yeah. Scott thinks it is. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. So, uh, yeah, people are getting confused. We call you first name, call sign. Most people know my call sign. So I'm not sure how it is in the Navy, but in the Air Force, like nobody knows your first name. We would have first name Fridays where uh, you got shacked if you didn't know someone's first name. And like we had enough to like buy, you know, bottles of Jack from that. So nobody knew the first name. So everybody knows me as Hazard. And so I just kind of stuck with that. In terms of has it paid off? I, I don't know if it's paid off. Like uh, it's just a name, probably like Jello. 
can't think of any specific instances where it's paid off. But let me let me think about it. Okay, well, we can come back to it if something uh, pops into your mind suddenly. Niels Hansen, how did flying the civilian former Israeli F-16 compare to combat-ready U.S. Air Force Vipers? You already talked about a little more agile maybe because the gun was missing. But as far as the rest of it? Yeah, more agile because there's nothing on the jet. like in, Pylons and I, I probably flew a, a slick... F-16 maybe 10 times in my career, like almost never. There'd always be like a centerline bag. We only had 7,000 pounds of fuel and you would go through that in like five minutes in full afterburner. So these jets are slick because I think they're trying to save money for that. So, I mean, they're far lighter than the F-16s that I flew. Avionics, it's both. It's far older because they're A models and then the ones that have been upgraded. I haven't flown in any of the upgraded ones but got a chance to look at the simulator tapes and it's pretty incredible what they're doing. Like it's almost like from what I hear the like new F 16s that uh, like Billy Flynn was talking about the block sixties that are going out there. So doing, it's kind of like F 35 light ish. So the ones I was flying old steam gauges with uh, a lot of history behind them, but the new ones are going to be pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Is that a relationship you're perpetuating with top aces or was that kind of a one-time thing to go out and fly with them? I mean, uh, both. I mean, we're going to be doing some more things with them, but it's not like I'm flying like every day with them. So I flew with them. We're going to be doing another shoot with them. So, I mean, it's, it's great. They're just down the road. So they're a great group of guys. All right. And then Derek Burney is our last question. And I purposely put it last because it's a great segue into what I want to cover. What made you decide to write a book? Now, first off, what is the name of your book? It's right here on the table. So uh, (laughs) I can show it to everybody. But what is it? And and why'd you write it? Yeah. So it's called The Art of Clear Thinking. And so it's basically to uh, apply fighter pilot decision making principles to everyday life. And so that's actually why I started the podcast, because there are all these professions with all this institutionalized knowledge. And it just stays siloed there. It's not because it's classified or anything like that. It's just because when we're on status you know, or active duty, we're just too busy with the mission to be able to share that with the rest of the world. So I wanted to distill it in a way that would be entertaining to people out there. I'm a fan of like Malcolm Gladwell books where it's like 80% storytelling, 20% lessons learned. And so I really wanted to weave these amazing stories, some mine, but most of them are like other people who've done amazing things. Like I talk about General Eisenhower on the decision to execute for D-Day and delay by day and then execute. And I tease through that decision. I talk through um, other aviation events like Air France 447. So I think as pilots, that's really our main skill if you boil it all down. We're flying, we're in this like suit of technology that amplifies everything we're doing. And so, you know, a soldier on the battlefield, they can shoot one bullet and it can, you know, impact one person. We can drop a 2,000 pound bomb and it impacts a lot more. So it's the same one person in their brain making a decision is just amplified far more. And I think that's what's happening with all of us out here. So I don't want to get too deep into it, but as humans, we burn about 90 watts of electricity. The average American burns 12,000 watts of electricity with all their technology. And so all that technology powers everything we have around us. Our car, we can go 10 times faster than we could by foot. A modern combine harvester can harvest crops 100 times more. When we're flying our jet, we can fly 100 times faster, carry 100 times more, see 100 times more. So I think that decision-making philosophy really applies to everyday life. And so I wanted to make an entertaining book. I didn't realize how hard it was to write a book, but I spent 500 days in a row, not taking a day off 
writing this book. It wasn't till the, the second Thanksgiving that my wife was like, all right, on Christmas, you got to cut the streak. <laughs> so uh, so I, I, I did that. And they also say, you know, the, the trick to writing a first draft is to write a crappy first draft. So I wrote a crappy uh, first draft. That means you have a crappy first draft that you have to take into a second draft. So I went through nine revisions with it. So it's really been kind of my uh, primary project for the last couple of years. And uh, to go full circle, it really goes back to that 2017 speaking in classrooms because I started writing down some of the stories and I was like, maybe I can get it published. But then I realized that unless you like have an audience, you can't really get you know a publisher to pay attention to you. So this is going to finally complete the circle. It's coming out uh, May 23rd. Yeah, it's definitely been a fun project. Fantastic. Well, again, it's called The Art of Clear Thinking, May 23rd, 2023. I read it because you sent it early. Thank you. And I enjoyed that you had, like you said, some stories to really engage the reader. And some of those you shared today. So your experiences in Afghanistan and being there when people are getting, frankly, shot up on the ground, but also some of the human performance that you did in the F-35. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the story of Eisenhower um, with that very difficult decision. And then what does he do? He what goes and plays a board game with one of his assistants because he just needed to be able to kind of disconnect and think and, and refresh his brain a little bit. So who are you hoping will read it? I'm hoping everybody can take something away from it. So definitely hardcore aviation fans are going to like the, the aviation stories behind it. But I think professionals will be able to apply it to whatever their career fields are. So I really tried to write it in a way that's engaging and that people outside of just aviation will enjoy. So if you're a kid and looking to become a fighter pilot, I think you'll get something out of it. If you're like a doctor, lawyer, teacher, parent, I think you'll get something out of it. And uh, I think uh, if you just enjoy good stories, you'll get something out of it. You know, we still have some... uh, some book plates that I flew supersonic with in the top aces jet. So um, I will give you some to uh, to hand out for people that pre-order. Or I can I can do it as well. We can figure something out. Yeah, let's figure that out. We can either throw it in the notes or uh, we'll do some social media around it. Well, in addition to your book, you brought me a little gift here. This looks bigger than the 20 millimeter I used to fire in my uh, F-18. Yeah, everybody's seen the, uh, the 20 mic mic, but that's pretty rare because we don't shoot a lot with our F-35 guns. So that's a 25 mic mic round. We carry 181 of those. So yeah, there you go. Very good. Okay, so yeah, you didn't deploy in the F-35, right? Your deployments no. to Afghanistan were? F-16, F-16. yeah. Okay. But I did I did strafe three times downrange there. So I mean, the gun is still a, a useful weapon. That's right. A lot of people don't think that's true, but I definitely do. Very cool. Well, so what's the future for you? I mean, you've got a book coming out. You've got an active YouTube channel that's growing. I'm trying to catch up to you. It's going to take me a while. You know, you've got a lot of good connections, but you're a reservist, right? I think you said. Got to get the terminology right. More of the same or is there a bigger pie in the sky? What, what are you aiming for? More of the same. Like I, I wish I had a, another big project like the book to sink my teeth into. But right now I'm kind of just going on different shows and podcasts and promoting the, uh, the book. But then after that, I'm, I'm looking for a new project. So I don't know. Maybe you'll have me uh, do something here on the show. <laughs> well, we're always trying to uh, figure out not what to do next, but what not to do next, because we seem to have more ideas than the time or energy. To, I, I like that. That's a good decision making principle. I talk about that. That's in the law of inversion where, you know, you just you don't need to know what to do next, but what not to do yeah. is just as good. 
All right, cool. Well, I don't know. I'm sure we could go on and on, but the last question I've prepared to ask you is, and we kind of touched on call signs already, but Hazard, is there is a story behind that you're willing to share? There is a story. And so the tradition in my last few fighter squadrons has been you don't tell it publicly. Kiss and tell kind of thing? I guess, you know, it's one of those things or kind of a, a camaraderie thing, but you can tell it to people individually over a glass of whiskey. Aha. So if if you or anybody out there, you know, if you want to know about it, Let's have a glass of whiskey, and I'd be happy to tell you. But until I get to a squadron that changes it, I think I'm going to hold off for now. Okay, I can respect that. And here's the other thing. See, you flew in this morning to San Diego. I picked you up. I think we have enough time for lunch before we drop you off. And my new truck has auto drive, so if I have a glass of whiskey, we might be okay. Yeah, I can let it drive us to the airport, and by then I should be good. That's cool. I haven't Am seen I that before. Say this so, <laughs> I think as long as you're less than the legal limit, I think you're That's good true. to go. Not in Japan. You said you did Korea. I don't know if you ever had any exercise or anything in Japan, but no. if you had anything on your system, you were no good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was scary. Yeah, Korea. I can't remember if Korea is like that, but uh, yeah, we're not going to be flying, so you know. That's the uh, the legal limits, uh, 0.08, so do what yeah. you want. When is your next F-35 flight? I'm just asking because I'm jealous. Thursday. So I'm coming out to this area for the SoCal Air Show. So oh, that's right. we're bringing two F-35s. We're going to be doing one static and then one's going to be doing stuff during the air show. So we're going to be flying in formation with some F-16s. We're going to do some low approaches and uh, and things like that. So yeah, looking forward to, to checking out the air show. And, and uh, that's my first time at March. So looking forward to seeing how that goes. Very good. Well, by the time people see this, it will have already happened. But uh, as we're recording, that's something to look forward to. I already have plans. Otherwise, I'd love to get up there. It's not that far from San Diego. But hope it's a good time. And thank you for your time today and everything you're doing for everyone who's consuming your content. I mean, again, I enjoy it. And I know other people do. So uh, appreciate you coming on the show today. No, it's a pleasure, Jello. I, I really have been a fan, like I said, of the Fighter Pilot Podcast since 2018. So getting a chance to be in your new studio, this is great. So thanks for having me on. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.